Thank you, John. Thank you, Linda. Can we thank Linda for leading this class for us? She is actually incredibly qualified. Uh, and she'll tell you, which I love about her, which is one of my favorite things about her. Hey, I want to start uh, with two things this morning uh, as we jump into God's Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. Galatians chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 10. I want to start this morning telling you about two very unique individuals separated by a long period of time and yet have something so incredibly beautiful in common. The first is a man you've probably heard of. His name is Isaac Newton. Anybody familiar with that name? Relatively famous guy. He discovered this thing called gravity. Um, rumor has it right that it was an apple that he saw fall from the tree and that he began to explore and then ultimately discovered the laws of gravity. But famous for a few other things too. Discovering really the laws of motion, inertia, acceleration, action, and reaction. He also invented what we would probably describe as the first reflecting telescope, where instead of using glass to look at objects at a distance like stars, he actually used mirrors together. This fascinating thing, a technology that happened, I mean, this is like 1600s, and yet Hubble telescope is based on this largely, this idea of using mirrors and refraction. And then finally, uh, he's pretty well known for discovering calculus, not as cool as the other stuff right? Um, but this guy accomplished a ton of things. You look at somebody and you say, man, that, that guy lived a full life. He accomplished. He did these incredible things. He ended up at a place where people recognized him and knew him. He did these amazing things. But I want you to know how self-aware Isaac Newton was. He wrote in a letter to one of his friends, his counterparts, actually, a scientist, uh, an astronomer that was working closely with him and really just admiring his work. He writes to him and he, and he kind of lavishes all of these compliments on him and tells him how brilliant he is and all this stuff. And Isaac Newton said this famous phrase back to him. He said, if I can see further than any, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Everything that he was able to accomplish, he recognized that he was far from a self-made man. He actually had other people who lifted him up and empowered him and enabled him to do the things that he did. There's this other guy who in some ways you might look at and say couldn't be more different. His name is Derrick Henry. He plays running back for the Tennessee Titans. At least he has. He's in, he's in a state uh, that we call free agency. So we don't know if he's going to go back to the Tennessee Titans or a team that can maybe actually win a Super Bowl. So uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen with Derek. And Derek knows this too. He's well aware of his contract situation and all this stuff. And when they played the last game of their season this year, the Tennessee Titans beat the Jacksonville Jaguars. And after the game, Derrick Henry gave a pretty long speech, more so than an athlete typically would at a press conference at the end of a game, and even particularly at the end of a season. He did this incredibly unique thing where he thanked everyone who he believed put him in a position for success. And this is who that included. Equipment staff, security, social media, journalists, those that were in the kitchen, and the cleaning staff. All of these people 
like mentioned them by name. I think it was, I looked at the list, I think it was 24, 25 people that he thanked by name for everything that they did for him. Now you look at Derrick Henry and you look at the record books and there's no, none of those people are mentioned, right? Like it's his yardage, it's his attempts, it's his touchdowns, it's his stats, it's all of that stuff. But at the end of what potentially could be his time with the Tennessee Titans, he can't help but thank all of these people that helped him get there. What did he realize? He realized that he's not a self-made man either. Everything that he's accomplished is because of someone else. This is what he said. The accomplishments that I've had, all of those people I just mentioned, they play a big part in it. Now, I share those two stories with you. And I want to ask you a question this morning, or a series of questions, really. What have you accomplished? And I want to be very clear, this is not a time for guilt and shame. I'm not, it's, it's, I'm not upset, or, and nobody should be upset with me that I didn't invent calculus and you didn't either, right? That we didn't run for 1,000 yards last season. That's, that's not the thing. But, but I want you to think about who you are and where you are and what you have accomplished. It can be things like this, that, that I have a, a loving family, or this is, this is the job that I have, or the thing that I get to do, and this is the way I get to care for others. I want you to think about what you've accomplished, where you are in your life. And I want you to think about how you got there. Wherever you are, I want you to think about how you got there. How did you get there? If you think long enough, you probably recognize that you have a lot in common with Isaac Newton and with Derrick Henry. You recognize that wherever you are, you didn't get there by yourself. You're standing on the shoulders of someone else who empowered you, who encouraged you, who loved you, who cared for you, who ministered to you. Who you are is deeply indebted to community. We have this saying, just like this colloquialism, this this statement that we say to one another in the world, that it takes a village. There is no more truer statement for the body of Christ than any other group in the world. We are meant to experience this thing called community in a way that is radically different and more beautiful and really should be the standard of what it looks like for people to live and love and interact together in a way that just really just mystifies the entire world around us. For the past three weeks, we've been talking very specifically about pursuit. And, and really around the idea that we are pursuing Jesus together. Not just individually, but as a church, as a family, as a body, as Double Oak Chelsea. In this coming year, our goal and what we long to see happen is for God to transform us as we pursue Jesus Christ. As we run after the God who has come to us and pursued us. What does that look like? What does it mean to pursue Jesus? What does it mean to pursue God? Well, it means this. It means that we're called to know our purpose. In John 17, 3, we, over the past few weeks, right, we've been looking at the high priestly prayer in John 17, and this is one of the things that we find at its outset, that this is life. You want to know your purpose? You want to know what life is? This is life, Jesus says. It's from Jesus' lips. He says this. This is eternal life that you know the one true God, God the Father, and Jesus Christ, his Son, who he sent. So this is our purpose. It's that we know God. It's also that we're transformed. Down in verse 17, it says, 
Jesus prays and he's saying to the Father, he says, Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Our purpose is to be transformed by the very Spirit of God as we know and experience Jesus through the Word. We're also meant to make disciples, to share the good news of Jesus with others. So if that's our purpose, we know that those things don't just happen. We've also got to live intentionally. So we spent last week talking about what it looks like for each of us to think through and make a plan. How am I going to walk with God? How am I going to spend time with God? Where am I carving out time in my life to pray and to know the Lord? Can I wake up in the morning and begin my day seeking after Jesus? Am I pursuing the Lord intentionally? Am I living intentionally? But finally, the Christian life that you and I experience understanding our purpose and living intentionally toward it are paramount. We have to do those things, but we're not meant to do those things alone. We're meant to live in community together. In Galatians chapter 6, in just a moment, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 and see three very specific things about the community that we're called to live in. What does it look like? What does it look like to live in Christian community? What does it look like to experience real, dynamic relationships with one another. Are we called to come and worship corporately here together as, as God's family and, and sing? Yes, absolutely. Are we called to come together and pray? Yes, absolutely. Are we called to hear the reading of the word? Yes, absolutely. But there's also more. In Galatians 6, 1 through 10, three real things emerge. I want to say, there's a number of things here, but I want to just distill these down into three very specific things today. Number one, we're called to do good. We're called to do good. And this is really going to reflect itself in encouragement and encouraging. So number one, we're called to do good. Second, we're called to have a relationship with one another of accountability of accountability in which we've said, hey, we're, we're seeking to know the Lord together, to live intentionally together. And this means that like, I don't just kind of stay away from you and you go do your thing and I'll just do mine. But we actually are invested in one another as we walk toward Jesus together. And finally, we're going to see that we're called to help one another. Not just that we live with this recognition that we're standing on the shoulders of giants and that we need other people to help us make things happen. Not just that we see the need, but that we actively help others. If you will, look with me at Galatians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 and talk through these things together. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes and says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who, ta who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, 
and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Three very specific things that really jump out of this passage, and I want to kind of start at the end in, in, in 9 and 10 and look at this idea of doing good and encouragement. Now, one of the most unique things I think you can find when you read through really anything, it might be, it might be a, a, a document of any sort of importance, or it might be a letter that you've written, particularly looking in the New Testament and you see all these epistles, all these letters that we have from Paul and Peter and James and other saints that write. One of the most powerful things that I think you'll find is how important last words are. You get to the end of these letters and you see these authors who were carried along by the Holy Spirit describing very specifically and intently with an urgency of what the believers to whom they're writing are responsible for or called to do. Like in their last words, this is their last effort, this is their last attempt to speak in this context and they want to get it all out and they want to say these are the important things. Galatians 6 is a prime example of this. Paul, in so many ways, has talked through with a group of people who is struggling and grappling with what it means to trust in Jesus alone and to fight against the urge of just doing the good things and the ritualistic, religious-type things of that day to seem and appear good or earn, in certain ways, God's favor. They're believing that lie and the other lies that, hey, we could go off into the ditch and just do whatever we want because God's grace is so available and free, we'll just do whatever. And he's saying, no, there's a middle path here to walk in which this race that you're meant to run, this pursuit of your Savior, looks like trusting in him and loving him continually and not being distracted by either of these two things. As Paul is teaching and walking with him, the thing that really leads into this passage is this, this beautiful picture in chapter 5, the latter part of what it means to live and walk in the Spirit. So this is where he picks up in chapter 6, and he's telling this is what it looks like to live the Christian life, to really be one who knows God and is living intentionally, who is walking by the Spirit. But when you do these things, you don't do it by yourself. You do it in the community of others. Look into verses 9 and 10, and you can kind of see the paramount thing that he really wants to push here and really share. He uses some of this pursuit language right in the middle of it. Look at what he says in verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So why use that language of not giving up? Well, as we've talked about, not just in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 and in other places in Peter, but throughout Paul's writings and so much of the New Testament, we get this continual picture, this really, in a sense, athletic picture of the Christian life as a race. And it's not a sprint by any means. It is indeed a marathon. But the idea, Paul, is that you, you, you run the race. There's a course that's being charted. There's a destination. There's, there's a real vision of seeing Jesus glorified, honored, and loved. And we're always moving towards that. And it looks like knowing him. And it looks like going after him intentionally and spending time with him. And it looks like living in community. So as Paul closes his letter and says these things, he's writing it in a very faith family kind of fashion. He's saying, look, you're meant to live in community, and here's what it looks like. It looks like doing good. That might be some of the simplest and easiest language in the whole world. What do we think good is? I mean, it's just good, right? Like, give me a definition for good. 
It's good, right? <laughs> like, it's, like, it's like the number one thing you're not supposed to do. Don't define the word by using the same word, right? But, but we use good for everything. Like sports are good and ice cream's good and pizza's good. The weather's good. We say good all the time. But when Paul uses the word good, he means something very, very specific. He means to live out of love and purity. And you might say, well, that, I mean, that's kindness, but that's more than good. But that didn't give me a whole lot more. But it actually does when you recognize where that word good comes from and the lineage it has throughout the entirety of the scriptures. I want you to think back to the moment of creation. Think back to the history that we find in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as God creates everything, and we're seeing it happen day by day and moment by moment as we walk through Genesis 1 and 2, after everything God makes, what does he say that it is? It's good. It's good. So when Paul is talking about goodness here and doing good to one another, he's saying live in such a way that you are loving one another in the way that God has loved you. In a way that is pure and true. You're truly caring in a sacrificial way. You're just being benevolent. You're just giving. You're just longing to care for the person that's in front of you, for your brother or for your sister. We're meant to do good. And specifically, Paul says, look, th there's a group of people that we're supposed to do good to. He says, so that as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. All right, well, that's the group. And that, while being very specific, is also very broad. Because it's absolutely everyone. This is the Christian life that we're meant to do good to all. But look at what he says in the next clause. It says this, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He's saying that you're meant to, you're designed to live in such a way where you love and care for the people that are a part of this. The people that you're connected to in Jesus Christ. That we're meant to do good to one another. I want to share this quote with you from the Puritan, um, John Brown. And I hope you'll, you'll see this. This is from the 1700s. This gentleman writes this. He writes this great commentary on Galatians. And he talks about what it looks like to love and what it looks like to do good. Specifically, not just to all, but also to Christians. I want you to see what he says. And I think that this can help us illuminate some of what's happening in the passage here. He says, Every poor and distressed man had a claim on me for pity. And if I can afford it for active exertion and relief. So, so anybody that's poor, anybody that has a need, they have a claim on us as Christians, right? For us to help them. Listen to what he says here. But a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings, my labors, and my property. He is my brother, equally interested as myself in the blood and the love of the Redeemer. I expect to spend an eternity with him in heaven. He is the representative of my unseen Savior, and he considers everything, this is Jesus, everything done to his poor afflicted as himself. For a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong. This is misspelled, but here's what it's meant to say. It is monstrous. It's monstrous. And we're meant to deeply, purely, truly love each other. 
And if you're like me, this is probably bringing up some of these weird things we call feelings right now. Where I think about, man, do it, am I loving brothers and sisters? Where I view them in such a way where I have their best interest at heart. I'm loving them. I want to serve them. I want to do good to them. I want to encourage them because they have a vested interest in seeing Christ glorified and adored and honored and revered. This is somebody who, who I'm bound to forever, for eternity. Am I caring for this person? We're called to live in such a way that not only do we know God, not only are we moving toward Him intentionally, but we're moving toward others intentionally, and we're doing so in community because we're loving one another and we're doing good. Here's how this is really reflected in so many ways throughout the entirety of the New Testament. If you look into 1 Thessalonians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and a number of other places, you're going to see this charge to do good really coupled with this idea of encouragement. Anybody know, anybody know what encouragement means? I had to be reminded the other day. It's not just a kind word. It's not just like a, a compliment or it's not something to like lift somebody up or it's not just to tell somebody to keep going, but there's a very specific purpose. That word for encouragement really means to, to help someone be courageous. To help someone be empowered to be courageous. Well, be courageous in what? Be courageous in remembering the truth. What we sang this morning was so beautiful, so helpful. Fear not. Why, why would we sing that song? On a Sunday morning. Do you know why? Because we fear. We fear. And, and, and we sang it this morning too. Also when we fear, you feel it. And I feel it too. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. We need reminders to take courage, but not in ourselves and not in willpower, only to be courageous in what Christ has done for us. And what Christ has done for you and me in his life and death and resurrection. This is Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 33. He speaks these words to his disciples and he's telling them in so many ways to be courageous. Why? Because a bunch of bad stuff is going to happen. Not like it might, but it will. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's your hope. That's my hope. That's where we can see and experience and trust and rest and courage. So when Jesus uses these words, take heart. That's the encouragement. Be courageous. I mean, are, are we helping other people in our lives? Are we doing good? Are we loving them in such a way where we're not just saying, hey, I care about you, but we're spurring them on and trust or helping them trust in Jesus and being courageous in what he has done for them in his life, death, and resurrection. You and I are meant to do good and to encourage one another. Second, we're called to have accountability with one another. I want you to look at this. Galatians 6 1 says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, again, like very broad here, right? This could be anything. 
You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, I don't know about you. There's things I struggle with. And there's things that you struggle with. Myriad things. And this is the point of the sermon where everybody's eyes start like kind of looking away, right? And we kind of like put our head down. But the reality is, you and I are saved. We're saints, and yet we're, we're sinners at the same time. Go to Romans 7. Paul says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. You and I are not perfect. We are being sanctified. We're being transformed by God's Spirit. But we have not arrived. What if I didn't have anybody in my life who was concerned about what I was committed to? What if you had no one in your life that reminded you to go to work? Now, you're an adult. I get that, most of us, right? And you don't typically need a reminder for that kind of stuff. You've got an alarm clock, and it reminds you, and you know, right? But what if you just decided to not go for a while? And people are like, hey, you're like missing a lot of work. And you're like, well, I'm not really missing it, you know? <laughs> what if that begins to happen? Ultimately, you're going to find yourself in a place where you don't get to go anymore, right? You don't have the opportunity to go. Now, what if we treated our relationships like that, where, and you guys, you know, good luck with your marriage. Y'all figured out. You guys can do whatever you want to do, but, but that's, that's your business. Well, not if you stood there next to them on their wedding day. Not if you care about them and the promises and the vows they've made to one another. And we're meant to live in community in such a way that, man, if I were going to know God and live intentionally, part of that looks like being together in such a way where I know you and you know me and you know the things that I struggle with and I know the things that you struggle with so that we don't just give each other a pass, but we seek to restore one another gently if we're ever caught in a transgression. Paul's doing something really unique and really beautiful here, and it really makes me feel at home because I think along with a lot of other folks that are, are much more scholarly than myself, he's being a big-time smart aleck in this moment. I mean, he's poking a lot of fun, and there's some deep irony here because he calls out these people and he says, you who are so spiritual, and this is very tongue-in-cheek. He's talking to a group of people who seem to think that they are more spiritual than others. He's like, you guys who are so spiritual should know that you're meant to care for people that are caught in a transgression with gentleness. Here's what he's saying. There are folks that are a part of this body, that are part of our family of faith, that are going to make mistakes and they're going to mess up and they're going to sin. Well, what, is it, what does it look like to deal with that? Does it look like we just say, well, I got sin too, so it just doesn't really matter? No. There's no pursuit of holiness in that. But it also doesn't look like, thank God I'm not like them. And I'm not doing what they're doing because that's absolutely horrible. Instead, what life is meant to look like in Christian community is to have this beautiful accountability. Now, here's the thing. This could be really dangerous if everybody this morning just kind of stood up and said, hey, here's all the horrible things I did this week. 
All right, that's, I, that's not healthy for any of us. What we need to have is real opportunities for small groups of people to gather and folks that, ladies that can sit with other ladies and talk through things they're walking through in a safe place and confess sin and pray for one another. Men that can do the very same thing. Groups of, of families that can do that. Right? This is why we have community groups. It's not just meant to get a Bible lesson or study. Absolutely, that's a core component. But we're also meant to live in such a way where we can actually really develop a loving, trusting relationship so that we can be accountable with one another and share with one another. Man, I need prayer because this is what I'm struggling with. Hey, man, I'm not spending time with God because I'm too busy. And work and family and life are too much. Or, hey, there, there's this thing that I said I wasn't going to do and I just keep doing it. I don't want to do that. Man, I need your help. One of the things I love so much about this passage is that Paul says that you should restore people who are in sin. We broke the church. And I want to be very clear when I say this. I don't mean indefinitely or forever, but this is supposed to be the safest place you can come. We're supposed to be this place where everybody walks in here and we all look at each other and we know that we're sinners and we know that we need Jesus. We know that we're broken. We know that we're messed up. And in evangelical America, the last hundred years, churches just don't look like that. This is the place where it's like, oh, no, this is where the good people go. None of us are good. You're not good. I mean, our Presbyterian friends get this. Like, we're bad. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. And we've got to push each other toward him. But we do it in such a way. This language, restore, that Paul uses is very specific. It's very intentional and it's very gentle. This word, especially in the original language, it means something that was used in two very specific contexts. One was repairing of fisherman nets. This delicate craft of weaving something back together. The second was really, it was used, this word is used around this time in history around surgical needs, specifically setting a bone back in place. There's something very orderly and specific about doing that. It's not just slapped together, right? You see, this accountability thing is we're supposed to have relationships with one another, but not in a way where we're judging each other. Instead, it's a safe place where we're confessing and we're restoring one another and we're encouraging one another to walk with Jesus all the more. So we're called to do good. We're called to encourage. Additionally, we're called to be accountable. Finally, we're called to help one another. Look at verse 2 when you see this language. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, that's one sentence with two clauses that has massive implications. What does bear one another's burdens mean? Well, number one, a burden as the word is described, it means a heavy weight. It means a stone. And here's the thing. We've all got burdens. And as Paul writes this, there's, I think, a lot of things that would direct us to and help us interpret and understand that this doesn't just mean the burden or the weight of sin. It can mean a number of things. It can mean a sin that someone is struggling with. It could mean a physical ailment. It could mean there's somebody has you know a loss of income. There's a family crisis. This burden could take on many different shapes or sizes. It could be a litany of things, but you and I are meant to exist in such a way where we help each other and we help carry one another's burdens. 
where we hold each other up. I watched this week um, a video about the Navy SEALs, uh, and they have this thing called BUDS, right? And it's this, it's this week of just, just horrible things that, that these guys who are training have to do to walk through the process of, of becoming a SEAL. One of these things that I saw these groups of people do is called Old Misery. And it's this 450-pound log that these guys in a team of like five or six have to hold up together. And the person that's kind of running the drill and telling them what to do will encourage them. Encourage is, is maybe not the best word here. Um, some pretty flamboyant things are told to these gentlemen. But they have to hold up this 450-pound log together. And one of the things that I couldn't help but see is that there are guys that are holding it straight up, but they're not just holding it for them. They're holding it for the guy behind them who's struggling to keep it up. And then they start to weaken a little bit, and then the guy behind them holds it up for them, right? They're bearing this together. These burdens, these things that we're walking with, that we're, that we're sharing in, that we're experiencing, you were not meant to carry them alone. You're meant to experience life in community with brothers and sisters who can help you bear those burdens as well. So, i got a question for you. What, what does your community look like? What does community look like for you? Here's some questions. Number one, who are you encouraging? In your life, as you think and sit where you are right now, your life, your family's life, who are you encouraging? Who are you pursuing and seeking to do good to, to love out of purity because God has loved you? Who are you seeking to encourage and tell them to be courageous in what they're walking and to trust in Jesus who has overcome for them? Second, do you have accountability? Is there someone in your life who is walking with you and helping you seek to know God and to live intentionally that like really knows you and knows where you are and knows how they can help you? They know, they know your day. They know your life and what it looks like. And they know to ask you, like, man, were you able to spend time with God today? What did it look like? You know, what did you learn? What did you read? What are you praying for? Those kind of things. Who's doing that for you, and who are you doing that for? Finally, who are you helping? Like, where are you serving? Where are you bearing burdens in your life? And I want to say something really challenging and very bold to you right now. If you don't have answers for these questions, the reality is you are probably missing out on Christian community. You're missing out on it. I'm not saying you're, you're terrible and you're awful and you, 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 you're not doing great in life. What I'm telling you is there's more for you. There's more opportunities to experience ways that we can minister to others by encouraging and doing good. Ways that we can experience the richness of praying with others, confessing sin with others, of living in accountable relationships as we seek to know God and be intentional. And finally, and you're missing out on ways that you can help and care for others. I want to know God. I want to know God, His Son, Jesus, who He sent. 
through the very power of the Spirit that indwells me. I want to live intentionally. I want to make decisions where I'm deciding that I want to read God's Word. I want to trust in Jesus. I want to continually pray about everything that's happening. With his, every moment that I have and the breath that I have within me, I'm going to be praying to Jesus about asking Him for guidance, trusting in Him and resting Him in every moment, believing the gospel for me today. I wasn't meant to do all that without you. And you weren't meant to do it without me. Brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity to pursue God, to run after him together. You have the opportunity to do that personally. You have the opportunity to do that with your family, within the context of this local body. But it takes all three. We've got to know our purpose we got to live intentionally, and we got to do so in community. I want to invite those uh, that, are, that are coming to help us serve the table this morning uh, to come. I know Brian will be at this table over here, and Drew will be at this table over here, and we've got deacons uh, that are coming to help this morning. There is no better way, probably, for us to express and experience what community really looks like than this right here, what we're about to do together. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Gary. Three things happen every time we come to a table where we take communion together. Three very specific things. Number one, we look up. We look to God and what he has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Second, and this is really familiar to us, and we're really good at this one, we look inside ourselves. We look inside ourselves, and we examine ourselves, and we typically spend this time confessing sin. But third, and this is the one that we have the hardest time with, We're meant to take this moment and we're meant to look around. This is why we do communion this way. Because what we're going to read in a second from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, that we read every single time we do communion, is done with a purpose. And it's meant to show you that this meal, I don't just mean like this one time, but historically is not just this individual thing. It's actually this big communal thing where people get together and they dine together and they look around and they're aware of the fact that not only has God saved them, but all these people around him or her, and you're drawn into this family of faith. Like, I had somebody tell me last week that I, like, really love. He was just like, I hate how we do communion. I hate it. And I was like, tell me about that. Why, why is that? He's like, man, I just, like, I grew up and I, like, sat in my seat and I just got to confess my own sin and just go get it. And that was a very real moment for me. But I don't like the laughing. and I don't like the talking. And I think it's weird. And I told him, like, one, that I appreciated him sharing that with me. I did, because I really did. It takes a lot of guts to tell people, you know, what you really think. And second, I told him, it's okay, because he's wrong. <laughs> he's just wrong. This is the right way. <laughs> this is a moment of community. You're meant to come and receive a picture of Christ's blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, his body given for you. So I'd love for you to stand at this moment. And let's read these words. Or I'll read and you read along. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 
through 26. This is what Paul says. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is what we proclaim at this table, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I urge you, whether you're a member of this church or not, come to this table, receive these elements, and truly be spiritually fed this morning. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would urge you not to come to this table and instead trust in Jesus this morning where you are, confessing your sin, repenting, and believing in the good news that though you are lost, Through Jesus Christ, you've been found through his life, death, and resurrection so that you could know the Lord. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to this table, may we truly proclaim, not just as individuals, but as a community, that you have loved us so deeply in your son Jesus that you made us a family. And that we are connected in community together. Father, I pray over the life of this church that moments like these will be ones in which you will stir the hearts of those who are here to deepen and find new opportunities for community in men's ministry, in women's ministry, through students, through children, through preschool, through our community groups. God, would you make us a group of people who are bonded together that can truly do good and encourage one another be accountable together, Father, and be those who help one another. May those things be expressed at this table in this moment to your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.